everybody to another episode of fear and loathing in cinema podcast oh my goodness we're so happy to be here it's the end of april we're getting into that summer territory but that doesn't stop us from watching those movies that you once thought was bad but now they're amazing so happy to be here i'm brian kluger and i'm joined by the two hosts with the most the the two men who i sneak out snuff with dan moran and preston barta how are you guys Ready for this one. Let's let's do it. Ready to film a film with you. <laughs> Welcome to the world of Dino Velvet. I mean, Brian Kluger. <laughs> yes! Yes! That is true. This is a true statement. If you can't tell what we're talking about today, we are talking about the 1999 film, 8mm, starring Nick Cage and Joaquin Phoenix amongst a host of so many other people. Yes, we are talking about that dark sequel to Rookie of the Year, (laughs) 8mm. This movie was released in February in 1999. It had a budget of $40 and the box office was almost about $100 million, so not too bad, considering its two-hour runtime and its very dark, sadistic subject material. Um, again, Joel Schumacher, the guy who brought us Lost Boys, the guy who brought us Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and the remake of Phantom of the Opera, Phone Booth. It's this guy making this movie Ugh. amongst other things. Joel Schumacher is a badass. That's all I'm going to say. It's been a long time since I've watched this movie and I'm so glad we revisited it because last week we did Nicolas Cage. This week, Bo is Afraid, Ari Aster. Joaquin Phoenix is in theater, so we had to put those two together and get them in a movie. Um, Good God, this movie's crazy. And it's crazy, the background behind this movie, too, and we'll get into that. But first things first, let's start with you, Dan. Um, I, I saw this in the theater in 1999. I was 17, 18 years old. Um, and interestingly enough, this was supposed to be this movie, eight millimeter, which kind of, uh, takes a very seven like, um, serial killer, almost dark tone to the movie, but throws it into the pornographic world, uh, the very low CD pornographic world where you're seeing snuff films and torture and stuff like that in porno films. And maybe one of them is true and actually somebody got murdered. And Nicolas Cage is at the center as a private detective here as Tom Wells. But uh, this movie was originally supposed to be released on Christmas in 1998, <laughs> which is just that's balls um but it was later released in february so dan do you remember seeing this in 1999 in february no i don't remember ever seeing that one um definitely would not have been allowed to have seen that one (laughs) uh were you not old enough i guess i'm the oldest one here then yeah i would have been 14 so i didn't have a car yet I mean, I definitely would have gone and snuck into it, but I don't remember seeing it in the theater or actually, you know, seeking it out um, in the theater. I This is another blockbuster special for me because I specifically remember the cover. Okay, um, okay. With Nick Cage. And, and I saw it, you know, rented it, watched it. Um, because it was, it was, like you said, it was just so dark. The subject matter was so dark. It felt like you were doing something wrong by watching it. 
Right, yeah, because it a lot of the snuff film had been like legend and folklore, you know, stuff like that, but never has been into a mainstream movie. And right. you know, this is Nicolas Cage, you know, action star Nick Cage, you know, all of his movies in the 90s, you know, he's on top of the world right now. And then you have Joaquin Phoenix, who is coming in and kind of at the start of his career. Uh, and he's, of course, the side character here and almost kind of comedic effect, but yeah. he's not the leading man here. So Preston, I know you're the youngest one of the bunch here. I don't even know. If, I mean, did you see this in the theater? <laughs> How did you come across no. this? No. How old were you in 1999? In February, I still would have been eight. Okay. Eight. So this is definitely not a movie for little <laughs> Preston. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was still watching Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Okay, okay. Hell so yeah. that was more that's about as hard as I went. Because I think my <laughs> first rated R movie might have been, yeah, maybe. Maybe I was watching Terminator 2 by then. Yeah. Okay, okay. So you were eight. So where did you come across this? This had to be like a video store rental or maybe yeah. recently. It was it was a video store rental. Uh, it was after I saw Gladiator. And okay. I was interested in Joaquin Phoenix's career as okay. a 10 year old. So I watched uh, this and uh, his other really great movie, uh, Return to Paradise. Okay. Uh, with Vince Vaughn that came out the year prior. Um, so I was interested in him as an actor. And so I uh, seeked this one out. All right. That is amazing. This one out. Yeah, so I thought that was good, good. I, I saw this in the theater. I was, again, 17 years old uh, in February of 1999. Yeah. And I remember loving this. I remember it's like, yes, Joaquin Phoenix, Nick Cage, you know. And then I didn't really know who Gandolfini was at the time. And none of us knew who no. Peter Stormeyer was at the time. Jesus Christ, that <laughs> dude is just a legend in everything he is in. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, and then you have like Anthony Heald, uh, you have Norman Reedus showing up, Catherine Keener, and then tons of other people. Uh, Chris Bauer from The Wire. Like, it's just, it's crazy. So watching this in the theater, I don't even remember if I watched it with friends or my parents, but whatever it was, I was like, man, this is dark and I love it. Uh, this is right up my alley. And I remember it getting such negative reviews. However, our knight in shining armor, Roger Ebert, loved it. Like, that dude knows. You know, everybody else pretty much hated this movie. And, you know, its runtime is two hours. And you think that it's going to end about an hour and a half in. But then they go back and, you know, Nicolas Cage has to be saved. Um, so it's, I, I don't know. So. Coming back into this movie, eight millimeter in its subject matter, and all the reviews back in 1999 said this was like the most hardcore thing happening back then because of its graphic violence, its graphic, frank nature of sex and stuff. I feel like this is kind of lighthearted when compared to today. What do you think, Preston? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it It's definitely for it because when, when I'm watching it today, I'm thinking about watching it at the time and i'm sure at the time it may have felt like it was one of the more edgier films out there but by comparison today with all the kind of television stuff that's on television today uh yeah it's a it's a little uh like whenever it becomes comes to like seeing stab stabbings happening and things like that it, it goes it cuts to a reaction and things like that so it's a little more artful in its approach and not going uh, all the way to really disturb you. Right, right. What about you, Dan? Um, I'm curious on what you thought as far as the violence and frank nature of the movie compared in 2023, as opposed to 1999 when this came out. Oh, I mean, today I wouldn't even bat an eye at it. Um, what's that I'd say like, about us what's that say I, about it's, us? I i know i joke about it all the time it's such a bad trait but i'm so desensitized to anything um obviously like the i'm more like oh my gosh the the girl's mother and that sort of stuff hits me way more than like a murder happening yeah. on screen just because of i'm more emotionally in tune but i'm completely desensitized to 
any sort of graphic violence that appears on television at this point. But back in 1999, and you know, when I rented this movie, probably in I would guess the summer of 99, or maybe like going into 2000 when it was the eight millimeter of Nicolas Cage's face holding up the thing and eight millimeter um, getting that from the video store. I remember it having a reputation for like, this movie is disgusting. It's so graphic. You shouldn't be watching it. Like I, I specifically remember that aspect of regarding the subject matter of the movie, which obviously when you're a 14 year old boy is like, well, now I have to watch this because people are telling me not to. Um, <laughs> so back then, I think, yeah, this was my first little foray into like, this is a really fucked up movie. Um, I would and, say and it's I think no it, worse than Silence of the Lambs right, or right. Seven. Right. right. It's, still, it's still fucked up today, but it's yeah. it messes me up for different reasons. Like I, I'm more of like, oh my God, just thinking like, you know, I know this is you know, dumb, but like having kids or thinking of a kid that I know in my life or a parent having to go through that situation. And those were not things I was thinking at 14. At 14, I was like, kill the dude with the mask, bro. And now it's like, man, I'm glad that that family got closure. (laughs) So, so it's just a different way of looking at the sadistic nature of the story now is all that's really changed for me. Well, I'm curious because, you know, behind the scenes before this movie started production, it was wanted that this movie with Joel Schumacher, he was wanting to do a very gritty, grisly, handheld camera uh, type of version of this movie that was pretty much rated X. I mean, this movie was rated NC-17 before they cut it severely for this rated R thing, but then he, he got that fixed with Tigerland. Right. Yeah, you're right. He did. Uh, but yeah, he wanted to do this handheld, very gritty movie and story. And Russell Crowe was on board for this. And like his one thing was like, I want it to be this like crazy ass gross movie that's like just super dark. And then Nicolas Cage got the script. Nicolas Cage was like, I want to be in this, but I want it to be a big ass budget movie. And so the studio was like, okay, let's do this big ass budget movie with Nick Cage instead of this kind of darker, maybe a pre a 24 type of dark shit that, that could have been. However, I'm very curious because this movie has never kind of been released in a collector's edition, really. Like, it's been released on DVD. It's been released on Blu-ray. But I want this uncut version because they had to severely cut this movie down. And I want to see what what we missed, what what was going on, right? At Preston, I know you're into the all the VHS and stuff. Is there anything like this with 8mm with, like, a director's cut or the uncut version? Uh, not that I know of. And when you were mentioning uh, Russell Crowe earlier, I was like, eh, Russell Crowe got this fix with the new guys or the nice guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much this movie is it's seven meets true. nice guys uh, minus not being funny compared. Well, Joaquin Phoenix's character. Um, yeah, not that I know, but a cool. So I guess Screen Factory, because I have that's how I have it. I have their version, but it's not like a full blown out collector's edition. But yeah, if they did something like what they did with was the Exorcist three, they found like VHS tape deleted scenes, and that's how they assembled the director's cut. Because at the time, they didn't really have a lot of digital backups and things like that. So who knows? where a lot of that may exist. I haven't researched it well enough, but uh, without Joel Schumacher around these days, I don't know if we'll ever see it. Which is sad, which is sad. So going through it and watching it again today, because it had been years since I'd watched this movie, did it feel almost, at least in the first hour, like an episodic TV show? Like how it was edited and how it like faded to black and then went to the next scene? Like it felt very... Almost for made USA. for TV. Yeah, cu- yeah. There you go. Like an early oh. USA. See, I'm. Uh, I was gonna bring up and say that it felt like a rejected pilot for like True Detective. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it felt like it, it. Honestly, that's how watching. It's funny that you said that, Brian, because I was gonna bring that up later. But that's what it felt like to me. Like this would not be a movie in 2023. It would be 
an HBO prestige series or a Amazon dark thing. They would not do a two hour movie of this. They do a six hour um, short little film of it and really give some more backstory and really dive deeper into like the porn scene and stuff. And I was thinking that when I was watching the beginning, I was like, just like you guys said, like, oh, that's where the commercial break would go. But this movie would never be on a network that had commercials. Right? No, it was. it's interesting that they, they build it or did it that way because it does get a little more hardcore towards the latter half. But in those oh, yeah. first hour, I'm going like, man, this almost seems like made for TV. And you bring up like, oh, my God, the HBO True Detective. Can you imagine? I mean, because the movie, the, the course of time in the movies uh, seems like a month, maybe a month and a half. And that's very, yeah. um, enough time to do like an eight to 10 episode series because there's so much happening in this movie and like even the crazy characters that he meets kind of in the montage when he's going through the seedy underbelly of the porno shops and like the SM clubs the one SM guy did you recognize him the big tall blonde guy that gives him the videos you know what i'm talking about I know oh, yeah, he's yeah. About, yeah, he's 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 in, in uh, he's the doctor in Funny People with Adam Sandler. He's like <laughs> he's the blonde doctor. He's also, I, I also want to say that he's in the Big Lebowski with Peter. Right. Yes, he is. He's one of the annihilists. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's him, and I think that's the he's the same guy. He's the the doctor that um for Adam Sandler and Funny yeah, People. They, they kept calling him Die Hard. Right, yeah, it's the same guy, and I thought he's that like was you're like a diehard villain. Yeah, but Peter Stormire, and it's interesting, like a lot of those little things, like Catherine Keener's in this movie, and then you know, That's Joaquin Phoenix wife. is yeah, and Joaquin Phoenix uh, is reading in Cold Blood, which Catherine Keener starred in in Cold mm-hmm. Blood. So it's just like a lot of little things like that. But Stormire in this, okay, we're gonna have to get to characters right now. So hey, wait, before you do that, <laughs> I, I was reading a little comment thread on the director's cut and where this unrated version may exist. And so, yeah, it says no unrated version exists. There's only some uh, notes pointed out during Jill Schumacher's audio commentary. And so get this says, this is what the MPAA cut throughout the film. So it says sex throughout the movie, for example, background sexual activity was trimmed under the quote, no more than two buttocks thrusts rule. <laughs> a, <laughs> a lot of conversation between uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Cage was removed because a bank of TV monitors in the background were showing hardcore pornography footage sequences in the underground sex club were trimmed to remove shots of enema porn which were in fact real machines uh cutting of of a particular character's throat was edited um so those were the big cuts those were the big cuts yeah yeah they they kind of showed the enema thing just for a second but they don't actually show penetration um which is that i mean listen there's one thing that I learned and I didn't know this about Schumacher, but that dude was a deviant, like super talented, but he was just like so open about like what a disgusting and sex addict he was like. And I say Put nipples on Batman, man. Well, those yeah. are the phrases that he used. But if you read like apparently in some books and interviews, he was like, he, he thinks he had sex with between 10,000 and 20,000 men in his lifetime or something like that. And when his first friend died of AIDS, he was like, well, if he got it, I have already got a quadruple, so I'll be dead in a year. Like, the dude was into all this. And I'm trying to from- figure out if ten to 20,000 people is a could be actually realistic, you know? Because I feel like ten to 20,000 people, you're nonstop it's, fucking. <laughs> so I read the quote. I yeah. saw the quote. I saw the quote on, it was in his Wikipedia. And I was like, okay, so this is a garbage quote. But I clicked on the link and it went to an interview with him where he oh, like okay. mentioned it or like a profile of him. And I was like, okay. But I mean, I'm not, listen, I'm not kink shaming the guy. I'm just saying like, this was his world in the 70s and 80s before he started somehow getting mainstream family blockbusters like the Batman franchise. But like he he wanted to make a movie in this world. It was a passion of his, clearly, or something he was at a minimum familiar and interested with. Um just like the the under the underbelly and how dangerous things can get in the in the whole exploitation world and i'm not saying he ever exploited anybody i'm just saying he was it was clearly something that he was interested in from his time um 
And, and that's just, that's probably why he's so passionate about it and probably why he went out of his way to make this. And on top of all that, when you watch the movie and you read about all these cuts, he was like, I'm throwing everything in so I can get as close to making this movie as dark as possible. I'll bet he was that smart where he was like, if I make this movie as an R cut, they're going to cut it down to a PG-13. You know, so he goes, well, it's, it's, it's ask for the moon, ask for the moon. And then exactly. they cut back there. And that's what he did. Um, he, want, he did. He did. He asked for the moon. And somehow I think he still got a sliver because some of the stuff in this movie, I'm like, oh, OK. No, it, it's it's it, oh, man, I, I still love this movie. Um, But it for those of you who aren't can't remember or not seeing this, this movie follows a guy named Tom Wells. He's a detective. He's married. He has a newborn baby. He calls, he names Cinderella, (laughs) Um, which makes me laugh every time uh, he says it, you know, Cinderella. And he is a private detective to like very rich people. And this one billionaire calls him and is like, come over. And she's a widow. Her husband, who's the breadwinner had died and she's going through all of his stuff and in his safe finds money and stocks and bonds, all the normal stuff, and then finds this eight millimeter reel that shows a young girl murdered uh, in like this kind of sex tape porn. And she hires Nicolas Cage to like find out if this is real, if it's not perfect, if it is, we'll see. And so Nicolas Cage goes on this, you know, wild goose chase to find out if this video that was filmed years prior is actually real of this girl getting murdered by a guy in a get mask and other things and so yeah and he he meets joaquin phoenix who is a sex store employee he you know sells porn and vibrators and stuff like that his name is max california and then those two kind of form a, bo- a buddy team, buddy cop action movie as they go through and try to figure out what happened. Um, and that's You're basically the movie, right? Yeah, you explaining that makes me think of how many more bizarre connections that this movie might have. There's one character in this film who we'll probably get to, uh, to toward the end that is connected to the office in some small capacity. And on the office is a character named Robert California. So I wonder you're totally right. Oh Oh my gosh. You are right. God. Dude. That's so creepy. Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, (laughs) the, the connections are coming in right now. So, uh, that's insane. So that's kind of where it takes us. And, you know, we find out over the course of the movie, you're always hoping like, yeah, all of these people who they're interviewing in these deviant underground basement things that are illegal, they're selling this crazy porn. When they mention snuff, these purveyors of pornography are just, Mm -hmm. they're like, get the hell out. We do not condone this. This is all fiction, you know, whatever. Right. And you're just like, Oh, thank God. You know, this is going to be fake. And then you come to realize, you know, our one of our favorite actors of all time, Peter Stormeyer, um, who, of course, was in Constantine as the devil himself, who turns in another brilliant performance here, by the way. That dude is just on a different level than anybody else. Um, he's, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's the director of this eight millimeter film that mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage is after. And um, James Gandolfini, Soprano himself, is the guy that kind of sets all of this up. He gets the girl. He get, kind of they're in business together. He's kind of the casting director. And then you have the gimp who is always in a mask. He's kind of the monster that yeah. we don't hear or see. And it all kind of culminates into Nicolas Cage figuring out, yeah, this is real. But why would this happen? Why would anybody want this? And it brings me back to one of our favorite movies of last year, Preston. Um, uh, Speak No Evil. It's kind of like that same thing of why did you do this? And it's kind of like, well, because you let us because we can't. It's like the end of Strangers. The end of Stranger. Why why did you do this? Uh, Because you were home. And that's like the thing. So probably what Dan was referring to 
about like what, what sticks in the mind outside of the the not so much the graphic violence and all the imagery it's those lines it's those little mm-hmm. feelings in these character decisions throughout the film that follow you home right it, it, that's what it is it is because you're thinking of like why did they do this and there's some elaborate scheme there's something about it and like no some dude paid us money and we did it and that's it and then for the monster in the mask in this situation is like, he does it because he gets paid and he likes to do it, you know, whether it's fake or not. Um, And I thought that was brilliant. You know, and and this was before a lot of these movies are coming out that we're talking about. This was in 1999. This is because like when you reference seven or um, silence of the lambs, there's, there's reasoning behind it. There's like a whole thing. They give an explanation and all of that stuff. And here there's not, it's, it's almost kind of, you know, very almost in real life situation, Columbine high school, you know, cause they, they said they didn't, they didn't give a reason. They just did it. Um, so I just thought that this movie kind of stuck that landing with that. And it kind of made it more sinister yeah. And then, you know, after you feel like this and then like after the first 90 minutes, you're like, OK, like this is going on. And then the next 25, 30 minutes of the movie is Nick Cage action movie, pretty much. It's like, yeah. OK, we're going to get the snake eyes. We're going to get the we're going to get the face off <laughs> type of thing. He's going to go on his own and kind of take out these people in a much more grounded way for sure but that's kind of what happened uh, and what do you think about that those last 30 minutes like i think it be, i think it is necessary because those last you know lines of the movie is save me nicholas cage is crying into his wife's arms saying save me like he had he got into it and so i thought it was necessary but what did you think about that preston what do you start with you i thought it was necessary uh, too, because throughout the film, you're kind of under trying to figure out why he's doing doing this. Like Joaquin Phoenix's character, Max California, at one point asks him that very question, and he was kind of stumped by it and said, "You know, I don't know." And anybody who's a parent knows that he's probably doing this because he's seeing his daughter. Like this is it, this could be a possibility for his daughter one day and he kind of wants to be able to feel like he can protect her. And so that, that was his mindset at the end of the film that once he discovers what's really going on, what happened and why these people did it or didn't um, without reason, it really just kind of shakes him in such a profound way that is haunting to me that uh, like what I was saying earlier, like him having to call the mother played by Amy Morton of the, mm-hmm. of the, the daughter who was murdered in the, in the eight millimeter film. He calls her to ask permission to kill these people because he, he's struck, he's stuck. He doesn't want to feel like he should do this. Like his, like his emotions are getting the best of him. Right. And, he needed that permission and that allowed him to kind of go over the edge and feel like in some, in some way he's, his decision is justified, but it still has this kind of rawness to it that feels very much like the end of seven with Brad Pitt killing Kevin Spacey's character after learning that he had beheaded his wife and like any other movie would have been like, he's going to go about this like a, a cop would, and call it in as what that that was his initial plan and so i think this is what makes the movie more interesting that yes on one level yeah it gets a little action-ish but on another level it feels different that it goes in that direction because yeah otherwise yeah would have ended with all the cops swarming the place and he would have we would be left with him like, oh, well, he probably thought about that. And it would be just as that note that he reads at the very end where, um, what's her name? Uh, Mrs. Uh, Mary. Mrs. Mary. Yeah, Mrs. Yeah. Christensen. Yeah. Um, who who uh, he who hired him to do this in the first place. Um, 
leaves a note after she commits suicide saying like try not to think about it and so that 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 would have been the movie but yeah they keep going and it's just like this kind of torturous thing for him to see like how far he he, he'll go and he goes all the way and it kind of has that same kind of raw feeling as uh, seven does in, in that moment that he feel like he he feels like the whole system is fucked and um this probably happens all the time that rich people get away with things like this and nasty people will just continue to go on and th- there's just mm-hmm. so many different thoughts like that uh and so i think that's what makes it really interesting even though on the surface yeah this is where a lot of the budget for the movies coming from. No, I agree. What do you think about that? Uh, what do you, what do you think about that, Dan? I thought, I think, I mean, I completely agree with every word that Preston said. Um, that's what sets the movie apart. And while I didn't love this one, um, upon rewatch, I, I still think that the, the fact that it does make that pivot in the final 30 minutes is, a great touch and does differentiate it from a, from a lot of other movies that we've seen, uh, especially for them to be doing this. Like we kind of tend to expect this in 2000 in 2023, we expect the movie to be like, now he's going to go get all the revenge on everyone. But in this one, it was from a more like heartfelt, like moral struggle situation rather than a, we've got the budget for this. Let's have him kill a bunch of people. Um, and his was just very targeted, I'm stopping the people who did this one murder. Um, and hopefully that means I've stopped others who have done this murder and right. asking for the, per- and asking for the permission to do it from the mom um, shows just like how conflicted he is about doing it. Cause he could have like, you know, exposed or undercut a thing and they didn't even have to say it, but we know in our life, like, like you said, Brian, the, the rich people, they're going to get an attorney. Well, you can't I, I prove this was real. You can't prove this ever happened. You know, that sort of stuff. Right. So it's, it's great. It's great how they handled it in this one, I think. Well, I love that, you know, that that final, you know, 10 seconds of the movie of him reading the letter that um, uh, Amy Morton, Janet Matthews, the mother of the deceased, was reading. And, and the reason he went on that killing spree, Nick Cage went on that killing spree, you know, it is, in fact, that you and I were the only person that cared for her. And cause yeah. everybody else in the movie says, you know, otherwise like she was a piece of trash. Nobody would care. And like, he felt like the father figure to her, even though right. he had never met her. And I, I love that about it. And I mean, I don't have kids. I know y'all do, but I feel like I would do the same thing. He would, I would be like, I am out to kill because these people are going to get away with it. You know, and if it weren't right. for him, you know? And so I, I like that element. It reminds it. me a little bit of uh, You Were Never Really Here with Joaquin, mm-hmm. coincidentally, yeah, right? where he's got the father figure thing and he's like hired for a certain reason. But then he just gets to a point where he's like, you know what? I'm just going to end this situation myself. Right. Like, I'm going to take care yeah. of this. And, and that's interesting to me. And, you know, definitely showed off a different side of Joaquin. Um, he did. And, 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 and Nick cage and this one you know nick cage has done ever has he's done everything every possible movie every kind of movie every type of role but even in the the moments you forget that this allowed him to be a badass kind of a coward kind of a pencil pusher he yeah got to do it off Let, let's fuck around with some lawyers right right dan let's fuck around with some lawyers Let, let's talk about let's talk about longdale anthony healed who's also the villain I think the real villain in Silence of the Lambs, he comes in as He's a instead of slimy bastard too. Like he was in Deep Rising, and he kind of played the same character too. Right, he was, and this this guy is just perfect at playing this slimy bitch. And in this movie, he's the lawyer to the billionaire, the billionaire family, and you know the twist, as you may, uh, of the film is that he's in on it, and. Yeah. Dan, as our resident lawyer on the show, does this shit happen in real life? <laughs> this guy's a, this guy is the worst lawyer ever. Like, why the fuck would you even like lie to the widow? 
have one of your friends have an intern pretend to be a detective and be like oh yeah no they were shooting these in california back in these dates and obviously this was a weird thing he was into you know like why <laughs> why go through this whole charade and then knowing that it's real and like if if he gets one lucky break he's gonna find out the whole thing is real that's the part of it i'm like i know we talk about this every week the movie needs a plot to drive it forward but it's one of those things where i'm like what an idiot well, I was I was trying to figure out because he does explain like he does hire Nick Cage's character and says something like, I thought He's you were cheap. an idiot to your your yeah, shitty goes, or cheap. I thought you never I never you know you were cheap. I thought you never get this far or something like that. And I was just like, yeah, buddy. But what if he did? <laughs> right. But like his previous experience, it seems like he's worked with senators. He's worked with all these people. He has to be good, right? Like I, that that's where I was like, that's the moment that you're talking about. Dan, I was like, what is happening here? Yeah, it's just like, I don't know. Listen, I, I'll work for a billionaire and I will lie. I'll lie. <laughs> just let me lie. Just let just let me lie. So, yeah, I'm just so happy to Anthony Heal just is just he embraces these evil characters. OK, so Nick Cage, you know, he plays it straight. He does have, you know, his little Nicholas Cage yelling moments, which I think is very great when he's asking why, you know, yeah. why? Like, I love that. But. Can we please talk about um, Joaquin Phoenix's Max California? Because we see, we we know Joaquin Phoenix, and Joaquin Phoenix is one of those actors who I haven't had the uh, pleasure to talk with in person yet or video, but I feel like he might be a little scary and a little intimidating in person. I mean, he seems very sweet, but there's always something like, maybe he's going to go crazy. I don't know. Like, I, I would be very... I'd be very excited, but also a little bit nervous talking with him in real life and in person. Um, but in this movie, he's like the sweetest man, you know, like he works, he, he's a musician, but he and he lives in Hollywood, but he's working at this porn store to make ends meet. And he's, you know, it looks like he's reading a book that's like hardcore pornography novel, like serial, but in, you know, that's just to confuse people. He's actually reading in cold blood, Truman Capote. He's this smart, funny guy who's willing to help. And do you, what do you think about his character? I really think, I feel like if they were doing this for test audiences, so many people like do not kill this character, <laughs> like keep him around because he was not the best part of the movie, but he's one of the best parts of the movie. He's he's so likable and great in this movie. What, what what do you think, Preston? Yeah, I think he turns up the energy a little bit because Nicolas Cage in this movie, as you said, he's like the straight man. And toward the end, when he is allowed to become unleashed, he does turn up the crazy and is the kind of Cage that we know him for. But in the beginning... I don't know his performance overall and I'll get to Joaquin Phoenix, but Nicholas Cage's performance is a little, I love him when he's, he goes, he overacts it. Yeah. He, he's very here, by the books here. Yeah. He's very dialed back. Like all the call, phone calls that he does with Catherine Keener, like they're not <laughs> great acting. Right. No, they're, they're not they're terrible. And you know, that little seek those sequences, cause it happens like five or six times in the movie. You think it's the same call too. Yeah. It's the same call. And you think right. like, okay, why are they showing this to me? Something's going to happen to them. Nothing happens, but it's like you thinking like, oh my God, they're going to find them at some yeah. point because they keep going back to it. You want to establish that relationship that you care about them, but they probably did it because of that one line that Peter Stormare has where he flashes the picture at cage when he turns the tables and says like, you think that you're coming in here to produce a movie and everything and everything's going to be kosher and cool. He's like, no, I've been on to you. And he takes out the picture of his wife and child. And he says, like, they would make great faces for my movie. And you're just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, but then he says, like, well, not faces, their bodies. Yeah, and I was yeah, like, bodies. and then he eats the picture. And I'm just like, God damn, Peter Stormire, you're unbelievably good. Yeah. Yeah. So that was sick. That was that was the sickest part of the movie. Like, I just that was over movie. the line for Dan right there. That's not amazing. over the line. I was just like, I was just like. I was just so disgusted. I was like, that was one moment where I was just like, this, oh, this is so, oh. I, I had the biggest smile on my face during that scene because I had forgot about it. And I'm like, God damn, <laughs> please tell me that's improv and that's him in this character. And then so. 
when he like regurgitates the picture because he's going to cooperate. I'm just like, dude, this is unbelievably good. Yeah, right. dude. Ugh. So, so I mean, we'll get. I promise we're going to get back to Joaquin Phoenix, but Peter Stormeyer <laughs> during that whole bit, even when he gets shot in the neck, and the way that he just kind of plays it off like I'm in control, and even when it's like failing on him, and he's like. This isn't cinematic enough. It, he's just like so disappointed in himself. Dude, it's so fucking good. It is so good. How is he? Does he have an Oscar? He should. He 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 really <laughs> makes the most out of it. Like uh, when, when, the way that he says Mr. Wells, I mean, I can't help but think of Mr. Wick when he's in John right? Wick too. So yeah. All right. Um, we made it, guys. We did John it. Wick. We did it. We did it. it. Yes. <laughs> Ring the bell. Ring the bell. <laughs> Did we do it last time? Did or did we fail? I don't, I don't think, think we, we did it last no, time. Oh, man. Man. What was there any Con Air connections? To... The fans are going to be so disappointed. Sorry, oh. damn. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll put some money in the in the jar right now. Okay. Oh, good. Um. So yeah, Peter Stormare's fantastic. So Walking Phoenix, I think he's he's really good in this too. Like he has like these lines that are very clever and smart and funny. They almost seem like they're kind of off the cuff too. Like it's, mm -hmm. there'll be like a wide shot of like them talking and it may be like an ADR thing, but it just seems like if you're, if you're just focusing on the action of the scene, you may not be like really may not be tuned into what he's saying. And I, I'm sure I have some quotes here in this book that I took notes in, but uh, dude, yeah, they're so funny. And so, yeah, I think he, he brought like some energy to the film and he pops up 35 minutes in. Um, but yeah, he makes his, his presence known. And I, I'm sure just like you were saying, Brian, like, when, when, when it comes a point in the film where he's like, all right, kid, you've gone as far as you can go. I need to send you back because I want to feel like you, you helped me where it's like, you know, the Tony Stark, Peter, mm -hmm. uh, right. Peter Parker type of thing. Um, like, hey, I got to send you home now. Like, he's gone as far as you can go and, and let me handle yeah. the rest. You got me in through the door. Let me do the rest. Um, so th that's a nice thing. And so when he came back up again, I was like, OK, all right. So he has more of a purpose here. Shit. It yeah, didn't work out exactly, 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 because his character is so well liked in here. And Joaquin, it's interesting because this movie is eight millimeter, and it's Nicolas Cage, and it's Joaquin Phoenix. And like you said, he didn't show up till thirty six minutes into the movie. You're like, where the hell is this guy? Like, why hasn't he shown up? But Joaquin Phoenix, like I, you can't we weren't do... looking for him then. But we weren't looking. If it was today, we'd be like, where is he? Why isn't right. he in the movie yet? But back then, it was just like, okay. It's like Parker Posey and Bo's Afraid, right, Brian? Right. <laughs> You're just like Parker Posey and, um and uh, well, God, what's her name? Mariah Carey. We're just like looking for her <laughs> and Bo's Afraid. And then it's like, all of a sudden, okay, there they are. Um, Which, uh, I don't know. Joaquin Phoenix in this movie, I mean, this, again, kind of early on in his career, you know, he's already made a name for himself somewhat, not like he is today, but... I mean, he's so good in this. And do you think in Joaquin Phoenix's world, do you think he ever returns to a character like this? And like, do we see Joaquin Phoenix actually die in the movie? Like we see him pass out, but like, I, I, I'm just holding out hope if for a sequel that they you want team a, up you together. Want nine, you want nine millimeter? I do want nine millimeter. No, it wouldn't be eight millimeter. It would be like, you know, like the Ari Red digital or something like that. <laughs> digital. Yeah, maybe the maybe the part of one of the deleted scenes that wasn't in the unrated version, they do like this Monsters Incorporated type of thing where, you know, <laughs> boo! Like he just happens to look at his wife and like hears a car roll up and turns around. It's like, ah! I like how you You're said alive. that. You're like California. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the big smile on their face. But uh, yeah, okay, okay. So talk with me, Preston, about the office. Uh, tell everybody about the office. Yes. Uh, I'm so um, excited for this. Yeah, come on, because we're, we're we're talking about all these connections to, you know, almost like seven and Rookie of the Year and Silence of the Lambs, but they're in, in the wire and. Um, because the guy who plays the mass gimp villain here is um, 
Bauer, Chris Bauer, who is his, his name in the movie is the machine. Um, and he's in the wire. He's in a lot of HBO shows. And he's always great. Um, and he's a criminal in the wire. So I thought that was pretty cool, but you have this office thing and it's brilliant. So, so the guy that you're talking about pretty much does the physical performance. Like he's the David Prowse of, for Darth Vader like but you know we know Joel uh uh James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader so it's a totally different actor that plays him right right uh no I, the same guy yeah it's the same guy Chris Bauer is the guy that you know he puts on his glasses at the uh, end yeah and... so I, I don't recognize him at all from the his IMDb picture so I, I'm completely wrong they are the same guy um so yeah, he's he's in the office. Um, so and that's it, man. That's that's the that's it. That's, <laughs> that's it. That, there it is. <laughs> but what, what you said, like you know, Max California, he is in Robert California, James Spader's character. So I wonder, there there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes here, and it was fun to kind of think, like, what if Russell Crowe was the the person here? What if you know, what if all of this happened and it was a grittier movie, but I'm actually happy that kind of like a 24 is doing with Bo is afraid in IMAX, this big studio put this out and wanted to release it at Christmas. Can you imagine? But David Fincher does that nowadays. He released Girl with the Dragon Tattoo during Christmas. And I wanted to not feel so good movie of the year. <laughs> I took, I took my family. That was a mistake. Not my kids, but like my wife and some in-laws. I was like, New David Fincher movie. This is a great book. Let's go see it. And I was like, ah, well, okay. That went well. <laughs> All right. So well, so let's talk about Amy Morton. So Amy Morton, most of us, we've done it on this podcast, Rookie of the Year. She is the mom of Henry Rowan Gardner in Rookie of the Year. And then she comes in here and turns in such a good performance in such a little amount of time that's very emotional, at least in one in one scene that she's amazing like yeah why is she not in more things you know because we all remember her from rookie of the year and i completely forgot she was in this and she's amazing and what did y'all think about her yeah i think she's uh fantastic Effect. and Very yeah 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 she she um like the moments where we're talking about with cage like trying to bring some normality to like phone conversations like she makes every moment feel like it's honest like I believed that that she believed that her as an actress thought that you know I'm thinking that my daughter's out there like you can feel just in those short that short window that she has on the film like that yeah she's been by herself because she has those great lines of dialogue I think she even says something like you know it's very depressing to eat alone and so you can just imagine like your mind just starts going and you can imagine all the moments and of, of her being alone and like what this has really done to her, but she still has a little bit of a spark to her that she's still somewhat hopeful that one day her daughter will turn up because there's birthday presents in her room. Like every time it's her daughter's birthday that since she's been missing, she puts the present. So it's just like all those little details. Like I feel like uh, the, the, the writer uh, who did seven uh, Andrew did a really good job of making like these characters that are, whether they're here for a long time or a short time, feel like they're fully fleshed out and they have a history. And I think that's extremely admirable. And so, yeah, Amy Morton's only been in like, less than 30 roles in her life but yeah i really wish she is so deserving of a movie that can really just give her complete range and a lot of runtime to be able to show off her strengths but when she pops up even if it's in like i think she was in up in the air or something um she i think so her her, her uh you right you'll you'll know like and you'll uh i'm yeah she's great I like that. And so I we got to talk about one of the producers of the film because it makes me laugh every time I see his name. <laughs> Gavin Pallone, 
is one of the producers of eight millimeter. And this was his first producing thing ever. Like this was, this was his, it was eight millimeter. He went on to do drop dead, gorgeous stir of echoes, panic room, which is venture. There you go. He went on to do zombie land and then like a dog's purpose, a dog's way, a dog's journey. But the best thing about this, he is the head producer of the entire series of curb your enthusiasm and Gilmore girls. And weird did this movie and i'm so ex- i'm so here for that because i've been rewatching for like the eighth time all the way through gilmore girls and i see his name every episode yeah. and when i saw it in this movie i just like almost like wow. <laughs> i was like yes gavin he got he, some dark corners man he gavin did ha- gavin has range man he does like some great movies uh and i like that you know he's very good friends with Larry David and Seinfeld. But then, so, you know how Preston, you and I talked about Mariah Carey seeing Bo is Afraid. Do you think Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David saw 8mm? Like, do you think <laughs> the Gilmore Girls watched 8mm? Like, I'm very, and now I'm very curious if there's a reference in Gilmore Girls to 8mm at some point. <laughs> Maybe. I yeah. Don't know if they go back and watch it. There's so many references, various subtly sprinkled in Gilmore Girls that it's absolutely crazy. Really deep cut. So I, I wouldn't put it past uh, them to sneak something in, but I don't know if this movie had as much power to be able to... I don't, I don't know. I don't know where this movie like sits within the entire cinematic time capsule. Um, I mean, <laughs> but- we... We we like it, or you know me and Brian really like it and um so that says I, something. I really do like this movie and even like the cinematography, even though it kind Robert of feels Ellswit, man. Yeah, no. So this guy that the the DP the cinematographer here, um, this guy's done like all the good stuff. And you, I don't know if you could really tell you like, you have to look for it here because the CD underbelly here it's kind of. Uh, compacted, but like he won the Oscar for There Will Be Blood. Be blood. Uh, yeah. He did Punch Drunk Love. He did pretty much all Knife of Crawler. Yeah, yeah Paul Thomas Man, Anderson movies. Boogie Nights he did. He did um, uh, what's it called? Um, he, he worked as a visual effects camera operator for E.T., you know, and Empire wow. Strikes Back. Like this dude is insane. Uh, and I think part of that kind of shows in here with Schumacher saying, like, I just want gritty and gross because the first time they go to Los Angeles, when Nick Cage arrives in Los Angeles, almost films like it almost feels like they filmed it in Mexico. Cause usually when there's like a movie shot in Mexico, there's like that Sandy Saharan yeah. orangey color. The and yellow, that's the what, yellow yeah. filter, the, the yellow, yellow filter, filter comes that's out. what happened here in this movie. Yeah. And they start playing like this weird Dude, Almost the score for this movie is terrible. Yeah, no, it does it's so, not fit whatsoever. Well, it does not because it almost like are we are we overseas in like Sudan? Because like right. there's like these chants and like what what's going on here? Is this supposed to scare us? Because I'm I mean, other than Danzig and then Danzig being on the wall everywhere, which cracked me up. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I thought the score is just like it's so weird because when they get into LA is when that music starts, and I'm just thinking like what, what what's happening is it supposed to freak us out is it supposed to like make us uneasy i don't know what what do you think about it yeah it doesn't make sense i don't know why they did that because yeah if you've seen a bond movie you know when the music kicks in and it sounds slightly different that's a uh an sonic transition to show you that hey we're in a different place in a different country or something (laughs) and so yeah that doesn't make sense at one point in the film it sounds like there's rubber bands being plucked on right i I don't know it's uh and there's some big emotional moments and then like it'll sound like oh well this sounds more like seven or fincher so i don't know what was going on with the score here did you like the score, Dan? Yeah, I mean, it it fit. It was it was. Uh, it didn't uh, take me out of the movie. I know you guys seem to have focused on it a little bit more than I did, but I thought that every time I heard some lovely little tunes in my ears during this uplifting film, um, it it, uh, it did distract me or feel or feel weird or feel bad. So I enjoyed it. 
Well, the the one the one great Sonic moment of the movie, I think, is when the Hedgehog. Yes, yes, the Hedgehog in the movie. Uh, the the one good audio Sonic sonically, you know, Sonic moment in the movie is when Apex Nick Cage, Twins. Yes, goes into the machine's house, and the record player starts skipping, and it's just that silence in the skip as he's slowly going through. And then all of a sudden it like comes in blaring again. And I thought that, I mean, to see that in a theater, seeing that IMAX again would be so terrifying. Uh, I, I gave me an idea and I thought that I I will mention, mention it to you after the show, but uh, I, this is so good. I, I I still like this movie. Record players and horror movies, man, they just go together like macaroni and cheese. They do. They do. Um, eight millimeters. So Scream Factory did a, a release of this kind of recently. Um, and but there's not been like the whole like I want. I mean, you have so many people here. I mean, we'd even talk about Norman Reedus showing up like the Walking Dead star himself is in this movie for like 30 seconds. Um, it's there's so many people in it. It would be nice to have some people come back and talk about this, especially Nick Cage or Joaquin or even um, the the lady from God, what's her name? Um, Amy Morton, anybody, Peter Stormeyer, like just get some people to come because there's, I don't even know if they've made a movie like this since then. Like there hasn't been a movie that tackled snuff like this. Has there? At least I'm forgetting. Right. Besides I think there's nice guys, I guess, but not quite like that. Yeah. No, not snuff. I think the seedy underbelly of porn or, or trafficked girls and stuff, I think has been Babylon. touched on in a lot of movies, but not, not specifically snuff films. No, there's been nothing like that. Nothing. Which is weird because this movie made money. Like it made its money back and more. But this movie would have bombed in 2023. You think so? I think if this movie came out with Nick Cage about a snuff film called Eight Millimeter and they released it at the same kind of time around the holidays and they released it in America today, I think the movie wouldn't clear $25 million. What? Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know. I'm seeing all these good movies coming out that don't make any money. I mean, if it, okay, fine. If his partner was Yoshi instead of Joaquin Phoenix, (laughs) I just don't think there's a whole, there's just not a market, which which sucks because this is a middle movie. The movies that are coming out that we see are either like indie, small, or big. That whole middle, that whole middle tier doesn't seem to have a lot of choices. And when they do put them out, they don't seem to have a lot of success. I mean, even air came out and we all loved air, but financially wise, and I understand it's with whoever it's with Apple or Amazon, Amazon, Amazon money doesn't matter to them, but I'm just saying like that movie had Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and was about the most popular shoe in the world. And financially people were just like, "Eh." so it's just, it's crazy. It's the middle of the road. I feel like if they remade this today with Keanu Reeves and like Ryan Reynolds as <laughs> the Joaquin character, I think <laughs> it will hold have legs like and it would be grittier. Um, and so you think a grittier snuff film movie that comes out in Christmas 2023 with <laughs> Ryan Reynolds as a porn star dildo salesman with no nothing too comedic would, <laughs> would be successful? With Keanu and it, I think I hey, I, we, I'm, we, but we're the target audience. Like for us, we're just dream building a movie right now. Of course, we'd see it. I'm just saying. My I think other people like, would. Hey, Santa brought you this snuff film. <laughs> my parents went to. I'm pretty sure I saw this with my parents. My parents went to see it. People were like all the rage with Nick Cage back then, and okay. it was something kind of thriller esque, and you know you, yeah, and like. In the trailer, they probably didn't show much, but in the movie, people might be disgusted. But today's standard, <laughs> I, I don't know. Coming back to this movie, this movie slaps, man, and I'm here for it. Like <laughs> I like this movie, and yes, uh, it's available everywhere uh, for a price. So you can buy it through Screen Factory on Blu-ray for physical uh, media, pound like Press and I are, or it's available on Voodoo, iTunes, Amazon, anywhere to rent or to buy. It is not streaming for free anywhere at the moment. 
Or you can find it in your rich uncle's safe. In your rich uncle's safe. Yes, yes, there yes. Go. There you go. Um, this is Fear and Loathing in Cinema Podcast. We just did 8mm. It's Nicholas Cage walking. Find it. Rewatch this. This movie mm-hmm. is pretty good. It's pretty hardcore. Uh, I, I still I still very much like this movie. It's I, I wish there was a sequel. Um, but yeah, there is there. Is there? Yeah. Eight millimeter, too. <gasps> there is. TV. That's right. There is. Oh, my God. Who did it star? Looks like it. I know it has Bruce. What's his face? Oh, yeah. Bruce Davidson. Um, Jonathan <laughs> uh, Skage. Lori. Okay. So a bunch of uh, Julie Benz and Bruce Davison are the only people of note that I see from the. All right. So uh, I'm trying to think. Does it, it picked up the rights? I'm trying to figure. I didn't see this. It was entirely shot in Budapest. I'm totally forgotten i'm curious yeah it, it's all different people so nobody looks uh, like we got our movie for next week <laughs> eight <laughs> millimeter two the movie double movie. up with that and smoking aces too right right oh, oh my geez. god um so yeah this looks a little different um so we are fear and loathing and cinema podcast thank you for listening as always find dan moran he operates the instagram for fear and loathing follow that um and read his reviews on boomstickcomics.com it's amazing preston barta he is giving all that knowledge about cinema and television um through freshfiction.tv and the denton record chronicle read his in-depth reviews of movies and his analysis of everything character and story driven see his interviews on youtube and find him at blu-ray dad on instagram and Preston Barta on Twitter. And I'm Brian Kluger, soon to be on YouPorn. No, wait, I'm already on YouPorn. I'm at highdefdigest.com, boomstickcomics.com. Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Look me up, Brian Kluger. Uh, Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.